Our scripture today comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. If you want to follow along, I'll be reading um, from the ESV version. But if you don't have your Bible today and are looking for one, there's some Bibles in the back on the chair by the door if you'd like to get one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus, in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for, the pur- for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many, dis- when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's word. Luke tells us now, as we work through the book of Acts, Luke tells us that the church finally had a breather. They had some solace after uh, some intense persecution. They had peace, they were being built up, and they were multiplying because their greatest antagonizer became a Christian. (laughs) Luke thought it was so important to record the conversion of Saul of Tarsus that we find it three times in his book. Three times in the book of Acts. Paul is going to talk about his conversion two more times, um, much later in Luke's account. I want to ask you a question, and just keep this to yourself. Uh, Normally, I invite conversation, but I just want you to keep this to yourself, and I want you to start thinking about it. Who are the people most unlikely to become Christians? Think about it. Who are the people most unlikely to become a Christian? Think of the people you know. Maybe people in the media, famous people, leaders, I don't know. But think of people in your own life. Who are the most unlikely people that you would imagine would become a Christian? I remember being um, in one of the cafes on Main Street here. It was like a year ago. And actually, Jonathan and I were together. We were having coffee. And I I started overhearing a conversation behind us. uh, And then we eventually introduced ourselves uh, to this man. He was a high school science teacher, uh, not from Westminster, from another another school in our county. He was a science teacher and a a very very confident, outspoken teacher. uh, atheist, anti-God, anti-religion. Um, and when he heard that we were Christians, he uh, very quickly said, well, you, you know, probably don't want to talk to me. Uh, but I remember thinking how intelligent he was and how confident in his demeanor he was. And I thought to myself when I left the cafe, would a guy like that ever become a Christian? But God does the most unexpected things through the most unlikely people. And as we talk about the conversion of Saul, I want to talk to you about the calling of God, the mission of God, and the irony of God. The fact that God calls people and, and gives people a mission and does this in truly ironic ways. So we see here that the Lord Jesus Christ radically transformed a radical at the conversion of Saul. Saul appears to have been a dispersed Jew. He, he was a Jew, but he was Jewish uh, by birth and, and by faith, um, but he didn't grow up in, in Palestine. Uh, he's, from, he's from Tarsus, which was a major city in the Roman province called Cilicia. So that's modern day Western, Tur- modern-day Eastern Turkey, near the, near the Mediterranean Sea. 
something else that was very impressive about Saul is he was actually a Roman citizen. Not easy to come by in that day and age and in that part of the world. And somehow uh, Saul ended up in Jerusalem living there and became a pupil of the esteemed scribe, teacher of the law, Gamaliel. We've heard of him before earlier in the book of Acts. And like his master Gamaliel, Saul became, he would later call himself, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was scrupulous in observing the Torah, the law of the Old Testament. He took pride in his ability to outwardly and ceremonially keep the law by his lifestyle. He was highly educated. He was cosmopolitan. So he was a formidable, a formidable opponent to the young church. And he was not only highly educated and cosmopolitan and well-respected, he was zealous. He was passionately against Christianity. Uh, His dates uh, probably uh, mirror Jesus' dates. Uh, Some scholars suggest Saul of Tarsus may have even seen and heard Jesus teach in Jerusalem. We don't really know, but he was probably around the same age, and he was zealous Uh, to weed out and root out these people who kept talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He thought it was uh, a terrible roadblock to the true religion of the Old Testament. And in his zeal, uh, he persecuted early Christians. Acts chapter 8 says that he went from house to house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison by the authority of the high priests in the temple. Now, now in recent history, we have heard of, of Nazis persecuting Jewish people in Europe. Here is a Jewish man persecuting his countrymen, persecuting other Jews because they were Christians, because they followed Jesus. And so he was, he was headed to Damascus uh, to round up any Christians who, who had fled from Jerusalem in the mass persecution that he had instigated uh, after the death of Stephen. So he's heading to Damascus to try and round up any Christian refugees who fled there from Jerusalem. But on the highway to Damascus, Saul came face to face with the risen Jesus Christ and was converted, utterly and completely converted. Now, the word conversion is interesting because it sounds very formal and um, very conceptual. Uh, Conversion. Uh, We convert all sorts of things in our lives, whether it's science or um, (laughs) what we do. Uh, But uh, conversion doesn't quite capture what happens when the Lord Jesus changes you and you become a Christian. Uh, The woman, Rosaria Butterfield, She said conversion doesn't quite cut it uh, when you describe what it means to become a Christian. Rosaria Butterfield, in her own words, was uh, a radical liberal activist, a lesbian, and a tenured college professor. Highly esteemed, very intelligent, very young, and very radical. Uh, But this is what she said uh, about her conversion to Christianity. This word, conversion, is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. 
I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter. Impact. Impact is, I believe, the space between the multiple car crash and the body count. So the Apostle Saul on the highway to Damascus had a car wreck. Had a chariot wreck, if you will, with the glorified, risen Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus. And he was never the same. And the way John Stott puts it, the Lord Jesus arrested Paul before he had a chance to arrest anybody else. And the Lord Jesus, in, in, in an amazing experience that Paul would later say was a light brighter than the sun, uh, said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The double iteration of Saul's name is really important. Saul wasn't hard of hearing. Is it Saul, 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 wake up. No, no. Um, when God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac, he said, Abraham, Abraham. When Moses saw a burning bush, the Lord said to Moses, Moses, Moses. When Martha and Mary were preparing a dinner party for Jesus and Martha was freaking out, uh, Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha. That language, the, the naming somebody twice, calling them twice, it, it denoted to the ancients intense emotion and affection. It is intimate love when God says to a person, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus right there, Jesus the great question maker he approaches Saul and and uh, blinds him to his feet and asks him a question why are you persecuting me so Jesus stands in solidarity with all of his people you might as well be persecuting me why are you doing this so Saul finally finally submits to this Jesus um, who he has been persecuting but this wasn't just a sudden instance this is something that was this is the end of a progression for for Saul he had uh, re remember that Saul was standing there when Stephen died Saul listened to Stephen preach in wisdom to the Sanhedrin and argue the case for Christianity from the Old Testament Saul was standing there when Stephen submitted to his own execution Saul was standing there when he heard Stephen ask God to forgive his persecutors. Saul would have remembered all of that. And, and although it's not in this account, later on in Acts chapter 26, when, when Paul is, is standing before King Agrippa, uh, Paul, Paul brings this story up again. And, and Paul adds a little detail to what the Lord Jesus said to him. Saul Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, against the pricks. Right? The idea is, is it's not comfortable. Um, it's not comfortable for you to resist my pricking, my goading you. Right? The hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit was after Saul. In Stephen's preaching, in Stephen's execution, in Stephen's request that God would forgive Saul and his friends for approving of Stephen's execution, 
the Lord Jesus was pricking Saul, pricking Saul, pricking Saul. And I don't think Saul was able to get any of that out of his mind and more rageful and more zealous trying to fight the pricking of the Holy Spirit. He continued to round Christians up and put them into prison. But Jesus finally put a stop to it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, astounded and blinded, finally submitted to Jesus. And his induction into the Christian community was tense, to put it mildly, right? Because soon thereafter, after he was helped and led into Damascus and he waited around in silence, blind, praying and fasting for a couple of days, then you know, he was rejuvenated by the help of Ananias. Uh, then Christians and Jews, who were not Christians, found Saul in synagogues, proclaiming out loud that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. This is, this is absolutely remarkable. I want you to imagine Heinrich Himmler, a man responsible under Hitler for the execution of millions of people. Imagine Heinrich Himmler defecting to the Allies in the early 1940s, renouncing his racism and becoming an activist for Jews and minorities in Europe. I want you to imagine that. You remember the wonder when you were a kid. You remember the wonder of watching Darth Vader's heart soften towards his son Luke. While Luke was being tortured. The, the, the amazement of seeing that evil dark villain come around and change sides. A little bit more lightly, so this is Marilyn, imagine a Steelers fan defecting to the Ravens. I often pray for Red Sox fans that, that they would become Yankees fans, but uh, um, all things are possible with God, I think. So um, this was absolutely radical and amazing. Um, this is game-changing, okay? This is a game-changer. This is astonishing for Jews and Christians to watch this Saul of Tarsus all of a sudden saying that Jesus is the Messiah. The Christians couldn't trust him, right? And, and, and his allies, his former allies against Christians were absolutely outraged by him. They wanted to kill him in Damascus and in Jerusalem because he ended up there. Now, his induction into the Christian community was tense, but it was successful. It was successful because Christians turned out to be peacemakers. You have these two men. You have Ananias and you have Barnabas. Luke talks about them. And, and Ananias was, was hesitant himself, wasn't he? Uh, but in verse 17, Ananias, and this is beautiful. You imagine Paul for three days in silence and in fear and in humility praying. And he can't see anything, and he's scared, and he's completely undone, this proud, intelligent man. Uh, and he feels a hand upon him, and the voice of Ananias saying, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the, Lord, the Lord's brought me to you. Jesus has sent me to you so that you would receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Barnabas, right? remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 4, called the son of encouragement. Apparently, he's not only called the son of encouragement because he was so generous, but because he's a peacemaker. He serves as a mediator between Saul 
and the Christian community, and he brings them together so that they're able to trust one another. And the trust was so complete, and the trust was so effective, uh, that when the Christian community found out that there were Jews in Jerusalem who were trying to kill Saul because of his defection, uh, they sent him up to Caesarea, and they put him on a boat back to Tarsus, get him out of the city, get him away from Palestine for a while, sent him off into hiding. They trusted him so much. A complete reconciliation. How ironic that uh, Saul, who left Jerusalem with permission to arrest Christian fugitives, now left Jerusalem as a Christian fugitive himself. You know, Christianity has been called a closed-minded religion, afraid of change and afraid of outsiders. And Maybe some Christians are that way. And some local churches, unfortunately, have been that way. But that is not Christianity. Here in the very beginning, you see the church receive into its number its greatest enemy, its fiercest oppressor. And they received him and they accepted him and they protected him as brother Saul. So I just want us to pause in wonder and remember that God's grace knows no bias. That the grace of God knows no limit. There, there is no dark corner of society, of humanity, of culture that is too dark for Jesus to reach into and say, you are mine. You are mine now. And you're going to work for me and you're going to live for me and I'm going to utterly change you. There's no one that's too far off. There's no one that has, that has done things so terrible that Jesus is unwilling to reach you or them. Just want to pause in wonder of that. And, and, and ever since then, for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has done this again and again to men and to women, to little people like you and me, and to world leaders and influencers and game changers like Saul of Tarsus. He did it to John Newton, that old slave trader from England who was radically changed by Jesus Christ and would later write a hymn that we sang in which he said, I was blind, but now I see. He did it to Chuck Colson, uh, that intelligent man who was, who was imprisoned after the Watergate scandal. Uh, and, but he left prison a changed individual and a mighty servant for Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. He did it to C.S. Lewis, who someone would later, who knew Lewis, would say that he was the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. And he did it to me, who at a time in my life, in my pride and arrogance, thought pastoring and preaching the gospel was the lamest, weakest, stupidest thing a man could do. Now, when God calls you, he gives you a mission. He doesn't just say, you are mine now. He says, I've got something for you to do. The God who calls us also commissions us. Now, the mission of God empowers you to do things you never thought you would do. When Ananias said, Lord Jesus, are you sure about this Saul guy? You know who he is, right? You've read the paper. Right? You, you've seen on social media what he's been up to and all his nasty, murderous Facebook comments about Christians, right? You've, you've seen all this. You're up to date, right? 
Jesus said, yeah, 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 I know all that, but let me tell you something. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name for the gent before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Saul will be sent literally to the ends of the earth. Okay, for them. The ends of the earth. Remember, the Lord Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And ironically, we see that the ends of the earth are going to be reached by none other than the murderous Saul of Tarsus. And, and so Jesus, you know, you know Jesus, you can, you can almost see from a spiritual perspective, Satan falling into his own trap here. Satan raises up Saul of Tarsus to persecute the early church. And Jesus just kind of pushes Satan into his own trap. No, Saul's mine. He's always been mine. And now he knows it. Not only was Jesus going to send Saul, Saul is going to be sent. But Saul in the sending is going to be greatly inconvenienced through his own suffering. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute. Is this evidence of the fact that I really think God is a God of just vengeance? God just punishes people. Is is that what Jesus is doing? He's punishing Saul for all of Saul's horrible crimes against Christians, right? I'm going to get you back. Look at all you've been doing. Now you're mine and you're going to suffer for me because you made so many of my people suffer. Not at all. Um, You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on, on the Mount, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus told his friends, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. If you're a Christian and people don't have a problem with you, there's something wrong with your Christianity, my friend. To be persecuted, not because you're a jerk or obnoxious, but to be persecuted because you love Jesus, that's a blessing he said, you're, you're, you're being persecuted because you love me. You're becoming like me. It's proof that you are mine. And the greatest evidence of Paul's conversion, complete conversion, was perhaps not simply that he was saying Jesus is the Messiah and, and finding fellowship with other Christians, but that he was now suffering and facing death for the name of Jesus. Saul's mission is is not the result of God's vindictive vengeance on him. It's not a punishment. It's a blessing. It's a liberation. It's anything but vengeance. It's the opposite of vengeance. Saul's commission is evidence of God's grace. That is God's favor and love upon people who don't deserve it. Paul would say many years later in 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. We should all ask ourselves, if I am called by God, what is my commission? What is he calling me to? Now, we're not going to have an out, as an outrageous of an experience or as global of a commission as Saul of Tarsus had. This is very unique, but there's something very common about what Jesus does to Saul. He gives him something to do. 
He calls them, and then he gives them something to do. And you may not know, if you're a Christian, you may yet not know how God has commissioned you in the world and in your life. Sometimes it may be as simple as doing what Stephen did. He prayed for his enemies. Maybe something as simple as what Ananias did. He blessed somebody who had really come to arrest him. Or what Barnabas did, who put aside his bias and welcomed in an outsider. Maybe God is commissioning you to do something as simple as that. I asked you earlier to think of a person or to think of people that you think are the least likely to become Christians. You got some people in your minds? Now, maybe you're thinking of yourself. Maybe you think you are the least likely person to ever align yourself with Jesus Christ. Maybe you are the least likely person that the God of the Bible would care about. Well, I want to ask all of you, have we given up on grace? Have we given up on the grace of God that we're unwilling to trust that he can do anything, that he can reach anyone? Have you stopped praying for that person that you've been praying for for years and have seen no results in their lives, no change? Have you stopped praying for them? Have you assumed that they're unreachable? Are you thinking that God's grace is not amazing enough to reach them? Or is God's grace not amazing enough to reach you? We all possess a pride. It's not a humility. It's, it's pride. We all possess a pride that rejects God's capabilities. But I hope you're going to see the surprising irony of God's kindness. It's, it's everywhere. It's all over the Bible. It's all over Saul's life. It's all over Acts chapter 9. Can you see the irony of Stephen's death multiplying the church? Can you see the irony of Ananias blessing the very man who had come to his town to arrest him? Can you see the irony of Saul willingly suffering for this Jesus whom he had been persecuting? You know, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is full of irony. There is so much irony in Jesus of Nazareth, in the Son of God becoming a human being, God clothing himself in humanity, the king of the universe lying as an infant in a stall with animals, the creator in this world without a home, without a family of his own, accused of crimes he didn't commit, accused of saying things he never said, the truly righteous human being hanging on a Roman cross as a convicted criminal in our place. Do you not see that your own salvation is ironic? The Bible says that in, if you are in Christ, you were God's foe, and now you're God's friend. That if you are in Christ, you were a cosmic orphan. You are now a child Adopted by your creator. Saul would many years later put it this way. In Ephesians chapter 2. And he really believed this about himself. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Um, I'm, I don't have time to read the whole passage. But you should. 
Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world and were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Embrace the irony of how God extends his grace to people, of how he has extended his grace to you. I hope you will see that it is an irony that you are a Christian, that God should show his love and kindness to you. That's the basis for actually trusting that God can reach other people. That breaks down the pride. If you don't think it's ironic that God loves you, you are very prideful indeed, as C.S. Lewis would say. But God even reaches us in our pride as he reached Saul in his pride, as he came to me in my pride, and he says, Brian, Brian, why are you persecuting me? I have something for you to do. John Stott wrote that divine grace does not trample on human personality. I got to pause right there. People in this world and people in our society think that it is a straitjacket to give yourself to Jesus. That that is slavery. I'm sorry. It is just the opposite. It is liberating to give yourself to Jesus. Stott said, divine grace does not trample on human personality. Rather, the reverse. It enables human beings to be truly human. It's sin which imprisons. It's grace which liberates. The grace of God so frees us from the bondage of our pride and prejudice and self-centeredness as to enable us to repent and believe. One can only magnify the grace of God that he should have had mercy on such a rabid bigot as Saul of Tarsus. And indeed, on such proud, rebellious, and wayward creatures as ourselves. God does the most unexpected things through the most unlikely people. And so, as a church, let's hope in, in this, this God who, who ironically gives his grace as a gift. And remember, Jesus reaches people that you've given up on. Jesus reaches people that you've stopped praying for. Jesus reaches people that you refuse to forgive. Jesus reaches people that you're afraid of. The plan of the Holy Spirit is no respecter of traditional plot lines. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask you that if you have not yet met someone in this room while they are walking through their life, I ask now by your grace that you would meet them. And that they would see that you intend good for them. That you intend your love and forgiveness and grace for them. Father, I, 
I praise you for the testimony of Saul of Tarsus. I praise you that you reached down and pulled him out of the pit and put a new song in his mouth, a song of praise to our God. And I thank you that through that man, uh, through the irony of his conversion and his mission, that you have brought the gospel to each one of us as we have read his letters and come alive to your truth. Thank you. We look forward to seeing what, what you're going to do through Saul of Tarsus in the rest of Luke's history. Uh, Father, please fill us with a hope in your amazing, ironic love uh, that reaches unexpected people in unexpected ways, including us. In Jesus' name, amen.